Good morning. Welcome to Kesson. How are you? Listen, you guys getting used to the bass yet at 9 o'clock? It's the only service that the intro is a little, it's a little much. The Thursday loves it. The 11 o'clock flips out every single time we do it at the 9, though. So far, you guys are like, hmm, somebody's trying really hard. I feel you. It's okay. <laughs> Maybe it's not for you. Uh, my name's Danny. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm really excited that you came. Thank you so much. Uh, <clears throat> this is, a, this is a, a great service because uh, it's raining outside. And as you know, uh, when it rains, the Holy Spirit shows up here in the Northwest because there's nothing else to do and you guys all come to church. Unless there's a Seahawks game and then for some reason the Holy Spirit is watching the game with you. So I don't know. I don't know. But I'm excited that you're here. Uh, we're in a, a series right now called Jesus Don't Care. I think people finally um, figured out that, uh, that I'm not saying Jesus don't care about everything. There's just some stuff that Jesus don't care about. And it's important for us as Christ followers to learn about those things so that we can uh, maybe evaluate the few things in our own lives that, that we care about that Jesus doesn't. Maybe we're adding some energy to some areas that we think are really important to God, but the Bible's actually really clear about the things that are important to God. You don't have to add new areas. And we do that, right? We're, we, we discover something maybe we're good at or something that we're not interested in, maybe something that uh, somebody else likes a lot, and we're like, oh, that's not for me. I just feel like that would take a lot from, you know, my presence with the Lord. I can't dive into that thing or, or, or be a part of that thing. And then you suddenly realize as you grow in maturity that Jesus don't care if you are into that. Jesus don't care if you're, if you're, if you're participating in some of this stuff. Jesus don't care. He just cares that he is the center of your life and that you have relationship with him. And so uh, the series has been a lot of fun so far. I have received some uh, clarifying emails so I'm doing my best to respond to those if you're, if you're one of those people, but, uh, but we like it. We're, we're a house of conversation here at Kesed. We're a place where we can live in the tension. We don't all have to agree with everything in order to be in the same church and part of the same community, and that's a big part of our identity here. So I'm so grateful that, that you're here, and uh, I'm glad that we can, uh, we can spend some time together talking about Christ. Uh, here's my series tagline. It's a series about removing the excuses that keep us from being known and knowing. So it's a series really about community because when you start to discover the things Jesus cares about and you start to build your life on those things and you come across other people doing the same thing, we all then find ourselves connecting with Jesus and so getting closer and closer together. Oftentimes, people who say, uh, you know, I don't need this or I don't need that or I'm not interested in that, but I really love Jesus, but I feel really lonely Sometimes I think you're caring about stuff Jesus doesn't care about because when you care about the things of God, you will naturally find yourself doing life with other people who care about the things of God. You'll find yourself less lonely. You'll find yourself in relationship. Now, normally at this point in the message, I like to give you kind of a preface about what we're going to do and how we're going to unpack stuff. But with great thoughtfulness, instead, I'm just going to sort of do a cold start. I'm going to ask you to trust me. Because uh, today's message is a little bit messy. Uh, actually, Thursday's message was really messy. Uh, it just sort of flowed out and kind of spilled all over the room. And, and it was a perfect response for, for that group and whatever God was doing in that group. And then I went home, and for the last two days, I've been trying to refine this because it was just too messy for my own comfort. And then during worship, while they were singing, I realized that Maybe today's message is supposed to be a little bit messy. Maybe I'm supposed to just sit in the muck with some of you, even though I don't really like it. So I don't know who you are, whoever you showed up with your mucky life, but uh, <laughs> you're messing my sermon all up. I don't understand. I had a great thing going on until you rolled in. But, uh, 
but, but I think it's good, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to maintain some of the mess, and uh, we're going to see what God does with it. Now, this is the story we're going to talk about. All four Gospels present an account of Jesus being anointed by a woman with a costly jar of perfume. It's, a, it, it's sang about, it's proclaimed, it's this beautiful story, and oftentimes when we're talking about the story, we're actually not even talking about the right story because there's actually three different accounts of three different women anointing Jesus with three different kinds of perfume. We never really unpack them. We never really sit in them. They're just kind of put together and cleaned up and sort of handed over as, a, as this idea that you have stuff God wants and you should give it to him. But in reality, the story is much, much more messy than that. Now, there's all kinds of prophetic reasons for that that I could preach, and it would be remiss if I didn't actually mention them. For example, there's a clear implication of Jesus' kingship inside these stories, since in the Old Testament, the anointing of the head was often associated with the dedication of kings. So there's this clear sort of fulfillment of prophecy as people are, uh, as Jesus is anointed by these different women. There's also, of course, the anointing, which is an appropriate way to honor the Savior Messiah, seen as culturally anointing someone or something at this time means God has chosen it for his good work and so on. So there's all kinds of really beautiful things happening in the background that we're not going to talk about. We're going to honor them. We're going to respect them. They're a big part of the story, but they're really, really clean and they're really, really easy. But if you actually allow yourself to sit in the room with these three different experiences, they're way more messy than that if you just set down some of the well, what's happening here is, you know, David was anointed and now Jesus was anointed and now he's ready for the cross. Yeah, awesome. That's not the way you're going to be able to write this off anymore because that doesn't apply to your life very well. But what's actually happening in the room, if you come with me and sit in the room, applies to you and me perfectly, especially if you're willing to sit in the mess. Now, for our benefit, because these are very similar stories, I'm going to teach them to you chronologically. We're going to start with the Gospel of Luke and Luke chapter 7. If you have a Bible, if not, I'll put the verses on the screen. About a year before his death, Jesus was dining in the home of Simon the Pharisee, who had arrogantly neglected to extend the customary respect and hospitality to Jesus as a traveling rabbi. He saw Jesus as somebody he needed to investigate. He saw Jesus as somebody who was dangerous. And Simon, as a representative of the church, as a representative of the hand and, 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 and the eyes and, and feet of God, decided that he would invite Jesus in. But he knew Jesus was a problem maker because Jesus was just too gray. He just sat in the tension too much. He just talked with all the wrong people. So Simon does what he does with all the traveling rabbis, and he invites Jesus and his disciples in to sit at the same table with Simon and his disciples, and they're going to have this incredibly awkward experience together, trying to figure out what is Jesus about. When Jesus shows up, Simon doesn't do anything that he should to show respect to another religious leader. He doesn't kiss him. He doesn't wash his feet. He doesn't do any of the cultural things. He just basically opens the, doors and, opens the door and says, hey, this is like, guys, this is like meeting a dude and then he just won't shake your hand. You put your hand out and he's like, what's up? Yeah, every guy in the room is like, what? That's what happened to Jesus? I hate Simon now. Yeah, because that's a disrespectful feeling, right? That's an uncomfortable feeling. And, but Jesus, I know, right? And you know Peter's in the back like, I will punch him in the face. And <laughs> And you know Jesus is like, before they even went there, I guarantee he did the minivan talk that all of us do with our kids before we go to an awkward dinner. He's like, listen, you shut your mouths, you don't talk, 
unless you're spoken to, right? You'd be on your best behavior. This is the minivan talk. I, you, Peter, in the back, I promise you, you will never go to another one of these again. And Peter's just like, so they go, they have their dinner, they have their experience, and this is what happens. Chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, this is what happens during the midst of this dinner, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So you've got this awkward dinner that suddenly gets far more awkward. Remember, Simon's trying to figure out what Jesus is about. The disciples are trying to make sure Jesus is safe and protected. They got an idea. They want to make sure he's respected. It's kind of a big deal that things go well. The other disciples of Simon that we all culturally know would probably be there are kind of gauging the situation as well, watching their rabbi sort of battle it out with this other new rabbi. And suddenly this lady comes in from the back door completely uninvited, dressed in stuff she shouldn't be dressed in for she's a woman of the city. She walks in and the room goes silent. First off, Simon's like, where's my security? How did she get in here? <laughs> I don't know that that happened, but I'd like to think that happened. She rolls in. She sees Jesus. She apparently knows which one he is. She comes up to him. The room is silent, and Simon allows it to happen. He doesn't say get out. He doesn't get his disciples to remove her. He allows it to happen because this is often what we do with Jesus. We find Jesus in these awkward situations, and then we just watch to wait and see if he proves himself to be well, the failure of a God that we think he is. So Simon waits and watches, and the woman takes her ointment, and she begins this process, this almost ceremonial process of, of honoring Christ in these different ways. And Simon doesn't say anything, but he thinks within his mind, within his heart, he thinks within his mind, ah, he can't be God, because if he was God, he would never participate in relationship with someone like her. Now, this contrast and this space that you've allowed yourself to sit in, this space is really important because every one of you in this room is both of these people often at the same time, including me. I am Simon all the time. I invite Jesus into my life. I say a quick prayer in the back and say, hey, Jesus, come on stage with me. We've got a lot of work to do today. I get in the car when I'm stressed, and I'm like, hey, God, could you take care of that stuff because it's just stressful. I don't show him any of, the, any of the proper respect that I should. Now, I love that I have this ability to be casual with Christ. I think it's important, but I think sometimes we have to recognize, like, Christ is still God, and he's not like your genie to rub and just ask him to deal with all the difficult things in your story. And so we don't create space for him like we should, and then when we show up in these awkward situations, I've done it. Maybe it's just me I'm in an awkward situation with somebody I don't want to be, right, a, a woman of the city or a person that doesn't fit my, my style, and I wait for Jesus to remove them from the situation because he knows how uncomfortable it makes me who is trying to have this beautiful dinner party with Jesus. And then Jesus starts interacting with these people or these things in my life, and I'm like, what, what, are, you, what are you doing? Just remove her. And Jesus just sits and participates and suddenly, I am made to ask the question Simon asked, doesn't he know? Doesn't he see? Doesn't he understand this person's like 
irritating and bothersome and of a different lifestyle. Doesn't he want them out of the dinner party where all of us as, as religious leaders can meet and pray and judge everybody else outside the four walls? Sometimes I'm that person, but sometimes I'm the woman of the city. Sometimes I'm just living my life and I'm making my mistakes and I walk by and I hear someone say that Jesus is moving in this certain way. I heard a song recently called Homecoming that was really powerful to me and someone sent it to me and I didn't listen to it for like three days because I'm tired of people sending me powerful songs. <laughs> it's like a common thing in my trade. You got to hear this song and I'm like, I don't want to hear your song, right? I'm in a space of my own right now. Finally, I heard the song and it destroyed me. It's the only song I've listened to for like seven days. Like the woman, I come by, I hear Jesus having a dinner party, I show up, like the song, and all of a sudden I'm like, Jesus, I don't deserve to be here. I shouldn't be here. Someone else should be doing this job. This message is too messy. I'm not prepared like I want to be. I'm not ready like I want to be. I don't even know who I'm talking to. And Jesus, instead of removing that uncomfortability like I wished he would have on Thursday, lets me sit with it for the last 72 hours so that I could be messy in front of you and be authentic about the fact that for some reason this particular message is just a really bothersome preach. And I think it's because I am those two people. And I live within that dichotomy within my story. And I try to tell people I'm one, or I even try to tell people I'm the other, when oftentimes I'm both. Eventually, Jesus decides to answer the unanswered question that Simon asked. He does it kind of, kind of powerfully, probably why the woman is still touching him. It picks up in uh, verse uh, 30, no, verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Then Jesus tells a story. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owned, owed 500 denarii and the other owed 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And then Jesus leans forward, and maybe he pauses what the woman's doing, because I think Jesus was an epic storyteller. And he makes really intense eye contact with Simon. And turning towards Simon, and then eventually the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And then I think he did a pause for six or seven seconds. We always just skip to the next part. I think Jesus just sat there. He who is forgiven much versus he who is forgiven little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This passage um, is, is a powerful passage for all of us who want to travel with Jesus and sit in the room with Jesus. I think one of the most important things this passage is screaming is that Jesus doesn't care about your well-refined and rehearsed presentations, especially, especially your well-refined and rehearsed religious presentations. Because frankly, those are the easiest ones. Like you can figure out the church code in about 15, uh, I don't know, 
20 minutes if you really pay attention. You walk in, you smile, you make eye contact, you say hello, you make sure and don't leave too early, but don't stay too late or you might have to pray for somebody. Right? You connect the best you can, you never talk about your problems, and you always say amen. After a while, people are going to be like, that guy's really legit. That woman's a very powerful person. You never share any of your mess or do any of your stuff. You sit at the head of your table that you've refined. You invite people to eat at it, including Jesus, but you never actually get into anything real. This particular story highlights the fact that that's not at all how Jesus wants us to engage with him. He'd actually rather us interrupt the dinner party, show up with what we've got, and present it to him as we are, women and men of the city. You don't got to dress up. You don't got to prepare. Apparently, you don't even got to bring anything for the feast. You just roll in. You find which one is Jesus, and you hand him your story. It's powerful. This woman's presence forces us to ask perhaps the greatest question ever, perhaps one of the most important questions you'll ever ask and have answered in your life. Who is Jesus to me? Is he a figurehead for me to show my friends? Is he a safety blanket? Or like for this woman, is he the hope I've been waiting for all my life? This woman was able to say no to her insecurities, her shame and all the voices in her head that said, you can't show up like that. You're not invited. You're not part. You're definitely not welcome. Just wait till he leaves and you can catch him on the outside of town. But she felt passion to go where Jesus was. And it changed her life forever. This is a crazy, beautiful story, but it's not the only one. And the others are similar and yet very different. In John's gospel, it's Lazarus' sister Mary who is the woman who anoints Jesus with a high-priced perfume. And this is at another dinner, but this is in Bethany. This story is similar to the one that's talked about in the other gospels, although this anointing takes place six days before Passover. John 12, if you have a Bible. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was. Whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Verse 2. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This statement she made was big, and it was bold, and it was powerful, and everybody knew it. Once again... Some people are gathered and they're having a Jesus party. I love Jesus parties. Can you imagine the party following the resurrection of Lazarus? Can you imagine what that would be like? The kind of vibe that would be in the room, the kind of experience you would have hanging out with Jesus and the guy he just brought back from the dead. But once again at this party, a woman shows up and interrupts. She walks in the room and decides to make it all real and lovey. We're here to celebrate the movement of Jesus and what he's doing. We're not here to worship him. Like, let's just interact. Let's just have fun. Jesus is our bud who does cool stuff for us. Don't act like you haven't thought it. The room got silent right there because I can feel when the room is silent and then the room gets silent. A bunch of you were like, yeah, yeah. Oh, that was a bad thing. I thought Jesus was supposed to be my bud. He is sometimes, but not all the time. And when he resurrects dead things in your life, you should probably show proper respect. Don't just throw Jesus parties all the time. You should probably be like, God, you just restored this to me. You are amazing. You are incredible. I have my life to offer for you. 
By this time in Jesus' ministry, the intensity around all that's happening in his uh, movement is intensifying. There's a lot of planning and strategy needed to keep him safe. And these big plans these boys have for Jesus aren't cheap. They desperately need resources. And yet here's another woman pouring them all out on Jesus. John 12, this is the response. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what he was, to what he put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. One of the things that often happens when people begin to expose their, uh, their adoration for God for things he's done in their lives is other people who haven't yet given over those things begin to judge those people as hyper-spiritual or charismatic or, or not really realistic. And it's often just judgment because they themselves have not given over the things they hold dear. Clearly in this passage, it's highlighting this seed within Judas that's growing that now two women have, have really brightened in his own life, and that is the idea that he's not willing to give what he has. As a matter of fact, he's taking from the movement. Judas is asking the obvious question here. Jesus, don't you care about my plans and strategies? Don't you care about my desires? Don't you care about the things I want to accomplish in my life? In contrast, Mary, she's already made up her mind about these things. She's proclaiming, this is my God, my Savior, and my friend. All that I have is his, including this valuable ointment. Through her, the statement being made to all those in the room is, I'll put it on the screen, there is nothing more valuable than relationship with Jesus. Nothing. It's a messy part of the message because respectfully, I have to just remind you that there's nothing more powerful than relationship with Jesus. Even the things that are coming to the forefront of your mind right now that you're trying to keep in the back of your mind, but that the Holy Spirit is just kind of rolling forward that you know you have put in front of relationship with Jesus. You still love Jesus. You still are at the dinner party. It's the relationship with Jesus part that's a little difficult because you have relationship with a few other things that you and the Holy Spirit know have become more important. I have relationships with a few other things in my life that I think roll in like a really heavy, messy tide and kind of wash away some of the footprints, some of the, you know, like the old poster where you walk with Jesus and then it's just his footprints, you know, the old one that I'm talking about. Yeah, I feel like sometimes I've got a tide of situations or circumstances or stress or anxiety or, or workload or pressure that just sort of wash away those footprints. They come back on low tide. But I'm not always prioritizing Christ first. I generally don't leave the dinner party, though. I'm pretty proud of myself. I've been at the dinner party for a few years now. But I think sometimes it's only the party that we really care about. It's not actually engaging with Christ as we should. There's one last anointing. And this anointing is mentioned in two of the Gospels, both Matthew and Mark. And it takes place two days before Passover in the town of Bethany at Simon the leper's home. So a different Simon. They both tell the story about an anonymous woman with an alabaster box. And guess what? She's another interrupter. Matthew 26, now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very 
expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And once again, the, critic, the critics can't stand it. Matthew 26, 8 and 9, And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. They again describe the gift given as excessive, complaining that it could have been sold for more than a year's wages. This could really help our movement. This could really help the things God has called us to do. God, why are you letting her pour this particular thing into this particular situation? Don't you hear and remember the things you asked me to do for you a while back that I've been working on? God's sitting at the table while you challenge his plans for your life that he designed from the beginning that you're worried he doesn't see that you never created in the first place. This is like, this is like Danny 101. I am an intuitive strategist by nature. I just want to be in the room. If I can get in the room, if I can feel the room, that goes for a meeting, that goes for a situation. If I can get in the room and feel the room, I can find my way to the other side. And a lot of times what happens is I pray my way into the room before I get into situations. And I'm like, okay, I know how I'm going to walk through this. And then I walk in and God's like, okay, here's what we're going to do. And then someone else shows up with like a different version of what God's going to do. And I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. Like I, I already talked to Jesus. I already know what we're doing. And they're like, yeah, I talked to Jesus too. We're not, he doesn't want to do what you want to do this time. Or he's okay with either of the things we want to do. And now you're just going to have to be good children of Christ and work it out. I think a lot of times Jesus does the whole sharing thing where he's like, vision for you, vision for you, both equally powerful, play nice. <laughs> I think he does it way more than we realize. And I'm like, this is what God has. And someone else is like, this is what God has. And I, I've said this in my younger years. Well, clearly one of us is wrong. And I think I had an older woman tell me one time, or both of you are right. And I was like, stop interrupting my Jesus party and leave me alone. I got important things to do for Jesus. This is such an authentic and real place to sit when you can sit in the room with your own movement that God has designed and let Jesus bring somebody to interrupt it. It's powerful. It's a lot like what I think the cross probably felt like. I'm coming to save everybody. I'm coming to start this beautiful movement. Oh, by the way, I'm going to die in a few days. The disciples were like, no, you... <laughs> You're coming to save everybody. You're coming to create a beautiful movement. Death kind of gets in the way of that. And Jesus is like, does it? I wonder what in your life needs to die. And you're thinking, but it, it can't die. Because if it dies, I, I don't even know what we'll do. I've worked so hard towards this or towards that. But Jesus is saying, why don't you give it to me? Why don't you pour it upon me? Why don't you see where I want to take it? This story uh, is, uh, is complicated. All three of these kind of end up asking this question that I think Christians don't like to ask, but they do privately often, which is, Jesus, don't you care about making the work we have to do easier? Just being honest. If God's in it, ready for the quote, then all the doors will just open easy garbage. If God's in it, he'll give you a sledgehammer and a chisel and a lockpick, and you might have to work your butt off to get the door open. Easy. 
If God's in it, you might get a shovel to dig underneath it. If God's in it, he might just blow the whole house down in a hurricane that takes everything else you love with it. And then there are no doors. And you're like, the doors are open. And now my life's ruined. And God's like, perfect. There's so many different options now for you to go and experience life outside the walls of this trap that you've built that you're hiding within. Jesus is aware of when we get indignant like this. This is what he said to the disciples. Maybe or maybe not, it applies to you and I. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, whoever, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Oh, I guess it is meant to apply to all of you. Because it's supposed to be told every time the gospel is proclaimed in this context to remind you and I that what we're supposed to do is bring what we have to God. This is what I value the most and it's yours is what this woman is proclaiming. What do you value most? What is it? What is it you're hoarding? What is it you're keeping? What is it you're hiding? This unknown woman's spiritual willingness to be who God called her to be, along with the rest of the women, the other Mary, along with the first woman, all of these women are contrasting all the time with what it is it means to follow Jesus versus what it is to actually give your whole self to Jesus. Judas followed Jesus. Judas spent time with Jesus. Judas was at every single dinner party. Like he knew the stuff. And yet directly following this story, the very next passage after this story, it's like this whole particular one where Jesus is finally like, look, this is what I'm about. This is what I came to do. Judas just finally goes, enough is enough. Matthew 26, 14. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment on, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas has seen enough of how Jesus wants to operate. He's seen enough of how Jesus wants to just, just run amok and, and be messy and hang out with people that don't matter. He, he unimpressed the, the Simon that mattered, the religious Simon, and impressed the leper. Like, pick your Simon, Jesus. It's obvious this one is more benefit to us, and yet you embarrassed us by letting this woman interrupt. It's obvious this Simon doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, you healed him from leprosy, but what can he even do for our movement? Finally, Simon decides he's going to do what he needs to do, and so he takes charge of the situation and is consumed by his own fear and need for control. Combined, all these stories paint a beautiful picture of what it means to treasure God and the things of God above all else. And here's where we're going to put a bow on it. I told you at the beginning, we were going to do a cold start. And that's because I've learned from experience that when I tell people we're going to do a measure about what you treasure, a sermon about what you treasure most, people within the first 30 seconds mentally just go and hide their treasure. They go, oh, sermon about money. Oh, sermon about stuff. Oh, sermon about time. Oh, sermon about giftings. And they immediately mentally just go to their mental backyard. They dig a hole, they bury it, and then they sit in church and smile. And they're like, oh, amen. Yeah. So instead, what I was hoping would happen is a little bit of what's happening right now in the thickness of the room. I was hoping Jesus would just interrupt us. 
that spiritually the Holy Spirit would just come in through the back door, through the windows, through the ceiling, from the floor. He would just come in and he would grab hold of that thing that you don't get to hide right now that you treasure the most. And you would be authentic about it. Not evaluate me and my eloquence or this situation or what this guy's doing over here. Or, and it's easy to do this, what your spouse or someone else, like this is a great sermon for her. <laughs> not talking to her, bro. I'm talking to you. Okay, and I'm talking to her, and I'm talking to the young people in the room, and I'm talking to the older people who are thinking, I've already spent most of my years, I don't have much else. Not true. Do you know how badly we need grandmas and grandpas? Do you know how, how desperately the generation coming up needs people who have weathered the storm? We preached this just a few weeks ago. You have so much to give, but because of the mistakes in your life, oftentimes you've buried your talents, you've buried your wisdom, you've buried your treasure. Let's talk about money. Everything in this church that you see, every single thing was paid for by people who understood treasure and how to give it to God. All of it. If this is your church, you should participate. You should serve. You should give. You should help. You should, you should show up. You should be present. And I'm not talking, by the way, three days a week for three hours a day. People are always like, oh, I'm so busy. I got a lot going on. Listen, I'm just talking about following the promptings of the Holy Spirit, giving what you're supposed to, helping how you're supposed to, getting involved how you're supposed to. Yeah, but I don't know if it's really gonna matter. It doesn't matter that you don't think it matters. Your plans aren't that important. I can start over if you want. It'd, call, it'd take another 20 minutes, but we just preached about this. Your security's not important. My, my idea that Jesus isn't part of my movement and doesn't he see what I'm trying to do, not important. What's important is that the Holy Spirit grabs hold of the treasure I have and he asks for it and that I show up and I pour it upon him just as I am in the midst of my own insecurity and my own mess. Do you know how much I hate talking about treasure in this church? I came from a church system that abused these kinds of sermons every single time they were used. That's why this sermon was so well-timed, because August, if you just want to take treasure and talk about money, August was the highest giving month in the history of the church during summer, doing, doing a series about women. What is that about? Like, there's no strategy around that. There's no, like, you know what would really cause people to want to invest in the church? Controversy. Like, it just doesn't work. But when you just go, okay, Holy Spirit, we're going to do the right thing. We're going to talk about women in the Bible. We're going to honor this. We're going to pay a cost. He's like, yeah, cool. I'll bless that. And suddenly people show up and they're like, I know how to invest in treasure. I know how to give my time. I know how to serve. I know how to help. I know how to be a part. So many of you have buried your treasure and you're not a part. And you just come and you sit in church and you smile and you sing. And it's, it, I get it. You're at the dinner party. I get it. But I don't know if you're close enough to the head of the table with Jesus, which, by the way, we're all supposed to be at, that you can actually hear what he whispers under his breath or hear what he laughs at. You can't hear the relational piece of it, and so you feel distant, but you're still at the dinner party, but you wonder what's going on over there. And you see the situation, and maybe, because I have a little bit of Judas in me as well, you start thinking, aren't there better uses for all these resources? Sure seems like we could do something better with this treasure. I feel like if I took over, I could control this movement a lot better. This is why I didn't tell you at the beginning we were going to talk about treasure. So that you could be interrupted and so that I could sit in my own stuff and be convicted. Every single time I have seen when God wants to show up in people's lives and ask them to reevaluate what it is they love more than him, it feels like this sort of thing, like an uncomfortable, messy interruption. 
And my hope today was that the Holy Spirit would burst into your life and your story and that you would feel messy and uncomfortable and unbelievably loved. For he's so excited that you're in this place and maybe you're just sitting at his feet and you just won't open the alabaster box. I don't know. Maybe you're outside the window thinking if I go in there, people are going to judge me. Maybe you feel like what you brought is just worthless. You don't have any oil. You've just got water. You've just got pain. Our Lord and Savior says he wants to take it all. This is what we're supposed to have our minds focused on as we build his kingdom and build our families and build our relationships and build our community. That is the love and the presence and the story of Jesus. Last verse. As the worship team comes out, Hebrews 13, 14, for this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. And so my friends, what I'm gonna give to you is the song that haunted me all week. I asked them to learn it, and it is this song called Homecoming that just came out recently. And it is an opportunity for you to reflect upon what it is your life is focused upon and how it is you are using the treasure God has given you inside your story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for every person in this room. I thank you for the way that you want to use them, for the way that you want to lift them up, the way you want to heal them, the way you want to redeem the things in their lives that weigh them down, the way that you want to pull apart the things that they have built as idols, the way that you want to bring conviction to them so that they may repent and experience love like they never have, a peace like they never have. God, we are grateful to sit in this mess with you, for this is not our home. There is one yet to come. May we have eyes to see the kingdom you are building and the way you are building it. We love, praise, and worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.
death came to lie when he called me by name. Scarlet scent had a crimson cost. Nail my death to that old rugged cross. An empty sleigh at the of those bridge one more time and I see bright crimson robes draped over the ashes a wide open tomb where there should be a casket how awesome is that let's declare this together I 
I see bright crimson robes draped over the ashes A wide open tomb where there should be a casket Children are singing and dancing and laughing The Father is welcoming, this is our homecoming Roses in bloom pushed up from the embers Rivers of tears flow from good times remembered And families are singing and dancing and laughing Come on, the Father is welcoming you enjoy the rest of your week and we'll see you next time